Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. In 2008, we launched the Greener Cow Project, the first program in North America to decrease greenhouse gases caused by cow's burps. If all U.S. dairies did this, it would be like taking a half a million cars off the road each year. Find out more at stonyfield.com. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Fusion energy powers the sun, but it's money that makes the world go round. Budget cuts threaten fusion research in the U.S. Also, the president pitches a pipeline in Cushing, Oklahoma, oil storage capital of the world. I don't know that anybody ever really planned initially, you know, woke up one morning and said, you know, we want to store oil for the rest of our life. But that's the way it has evolved. Plus, health concerns over fracking for natural gas. I was exposed to these chemicals for over a year. We had our windows open. You know, we were breathing this stuff in. And we love our cars a lot, but not parking lots. We actually think that cars are immobile about 95% of the time. And in terms of uh, parking uh, estimate, on average, we think that there are three spaces per one car in the United States. This week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. At last count, there were 8,371 people living in Cushing, Oklahoma. But it wasn't votes that brought President Obama to town. No, it was petroleum the president came to talk about. Cushing is home to 316 enormous oil storage tanks. It's the biggest oil storage complex in the world. Crude from domestic producers and Canadian tar sands is pumped in, but a lack of pipeline capacity makes it difficult to pump it out. Now, right now, a company called TransCanada has applied to build a new pipeline to speed more oil from Cushing to state-of-the-art refineries down in the Gulf Coast. And today I'm directing my administration to cut through the red tape, break through the bureaucratic hurdles, and make this project a priority to go ahead and get it done. Brett Thompson wants it done. He's executive director of the Cushing Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Thompson, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Boy, a big day for Cushing. How did you prepare for the president's visit? Well, actually, we haven't had to do a lot. We're trying to kind of make sure the yards are mowed and uh, get our welcome signs out and that kind of thing. So we get an opportunity to just kind of take advantage of the situation and get excited. So it's a historic day, but uh, the, the real history in Cushing is, is the pipelines there. They run really deep. Yeah, I mean, of course, Oklahoma, as you know, and Cushing's no different, has a long and, and storied history with energy. One of the very first huge oil finds in the, the world was here in Cushing back in uh, 1912, I think, um, when the old Wheeler well hit and... and uh, they found a, a huge amount of oil, uh, and we have been involved in the oil industry ever since. I don't know that anybody ever really planned initially to, you know, woke up one morning and said, you know, we want to store oil for the rest of our life, but that's the way it has evolved. How did they get the oil out of uh, Cushing back then? Well, it was done actually by horse and wagon uh, and in barrels, and, and everything has kind of evolved from that to trains to now pipelines. As I understand it, sometimes Cushing has as much as 10% of the nation's oil inventory. Typically, we will store about three days worth of oil at any one time uh, in terms of what's consumed in the United States. 
you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but we can typically store here, if we were ever at capacity, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 million barrels of oil. Typically, they don't like to stay at capacity. You know, they want to get it in and get it out if they can. Well, right now, as I understand it, you got a glut. We have never actually been at full capacity, but compared to years past, yeah, we've got more oil here now than we normally have. What does it look like to store this much oil? Well, it, huge tanks. <laughs> a typical tank that, that used for storage will hold uh, about 250,000 barrels of oil. You know, on the north and south side of Cushing, we have, uh, we call them tank farms. We have 13 different companies in Cushing that, that actually make it their business to store and distribute oil. How come you don't have oil refineries right there? Why don't you just take the oil that you store and just turn it into gasoline and use it there? It's funny you say that. Back in the early days, we did have 13 refineries. Oh. As time's gone on, they, for some reason or another, went out of business. And we lost our last refinery here back in the late 80s, I believe. Well, you're the head of the Chamber of Commerce. Do you ever put that to some of these oil companies that bring their oil to you oh, to yeah. store? But unfortunately, it's it's not that simple. I mean, they would agree, and they would have no problem with that. The problem is the, the permitting process and the environmental uh, regulations that we have. I mean, it's the cost of doing that, particularly when you have refineries already built. So I have to ask you, Mr. Thompson, with that you know ocean of oil that you got in Cushing, what's the price for a gallon the regular there? It's running about three fifty. Mm, cheap by today's standards. In, in a lot of places, yes. Because well, it's it's uh, four over four bucks in a, in many a many a place. Is it four dollars in in Boston? Yeah, it's not hard to find. I'll be done. Yeah, you need to be in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay with me. <laughs> uh, so what? Would the Keystone Pipeline do for you if they were to build it? I mean, do you need another pipeline? Oh, yes, we do. To get the oil out of here and and down to South Texas, and and it will help us do that. It will also provide more oil for domestic purposes, uh, which hopefully would have somewhat of a bearing on the price at the tank. As I understand it, if the pipeline's built, a lot of that oil that they're going to bring through your town and ship down to the Gulf is not going to stay in the United States. No. It could go to overseas markets. Mm-hmm. Some of it will. So how does that help us? It's, I understand how it helps an oil company, but I'm not sure how, how it helps the United States, you know, you know the, me. TransCanada has, and I've sat through several meetings with them, I have never heard them ever one time say that all the oil that's pumped through here into South Texas will ever be 100% for domestic use. You know, the fact that they're going to sell fuel, you know, export fuel to other countries, I don't know that anybody here has a problem with that. Well, Mr. Brent Thompson, I can hear why you're the executive director of the Cushing, uh, Oklahoma Chamber of Commerce. You're, <laughs> you're a good champion. Well, it, uh, it's been our way of life in this state forever, and... We think very highly of the energy industry and and probably always will. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Mr. Thompson. And do me one favor. Sure. Make sure that from this year forward that the Red Sox always beat the Yankees. (laughs) Will do. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
Petroleum powered our past and fuels our present, but many scientists and policymakers hope fusion will power our future. Half a dozen years ago, I visited MIT to learn how scientists were trying to create and control the ultimate energy source. The Fusion Plasma Lab looks like the control room for a lunar space launch. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. But physicists here five, are aiming higher four, than the moon. Three, two, one. They want to create the power of the stars. Entering pulse. Entering recool. The Alcator C mod experimental fusion reactor at MIT is the most powerful of the three so-called tokamak devices in the United States. They use giant magnets shaped like donuts to control the intense plasma energy inside. Earl Marmar, head of the MIT C mod reactor, says fusion promises unlimited clean energy, free of greenhouse gases and fears of a meltdown. Can't happen. An uncontrolled reaction is not possible. It's so hard to make fusion happen, you don't have to worry about that. What physicists do worry about these days is making fusion happen at all in the United States. President Obama's proposed budget for next year cuts funding for two of our test fusion reactors and entirely guts the MITC mod lab, laying off scores of scientists and grad students. Instead, the money would be used to fund ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor being built in France. The U.S. is one of seven national parties committed to ITER, and physicist Stephen Dean, president of Fusion Power Associates, says the escalating cost for ITER is the reason the U.S. fusion program is being cut. Originally, say 10 years ago, it was supposed to cost like $5 billion. Today, it's around $20 billion, maybe a little bit more. It's proposed by the president in fiscal 2013, which starts next October, to cut $50 million out of the domestic program to help pay for ITER. So how does that affect what is being done research-wise here in the United States in terms of fusion energy? Well, it's going to be a disaster if it comes to pass. It's a very severe cut. They're already proposing to shut down one of our three major facilities at MIT, and it'll keep us from being prepared to really utilize ITER. It's going to discourage students from getting into the field because they won't see the prospects of working here in the United States. So it's a very serious matter if it comes to pass. As I understand it, there are a bunch of powerful tokamaks, these donut-shaped magnetic confinement uh, fusion experiments going on around the world. But the one at MIT, this one, the CMOD, is the one that has the same kind of power that ITER will have. Uh, Magnet-wise, it has the high-field magnets and a high density. And so uh, for a small machine, it does have many of the features that ITER will have in the large machine. So by cutting the program at MIT, would that affect the program at ITER in France? It can. It can because, you know, after ITER gets built and is running, you have to then decide how to operate it and what physics regimes to study. And the MIT research results underpin the planning for the operational phase. Of course, there are other programs around the world that are also feeding into the physics of ITER, but MIT certainly had a unique plasma. Most of the other tokamaks are lower-density plasmas, lower-magnetic-field plasmas, and so the MIT program sort of had staked out a niche of its own. So, you know, to lose that program, I think, is an important potential uh, hole in the international physics development. Were you surprised by the proposed budget cuts? 
Yes, nobody expected this to happen because we thought we had a commitment from the administration that the domestic program would not be cut in order to pay for ITER. But what happened was we had to eat this international commitment to ITER, and that's what caused us to have a problem. The fact is, though, that this has become very political. But if the funding for ITER is driving the budget crunch in our domestic fusion energy projects, um, should we should we kill it? You see, ITER is an international agreement among State Department people, among science advisor people, among energy secretary people in these various countries, and this is something that got like almost like a treaty attached to it. And so the U.S. feels at the very highest levels, like Holdren and Chu, they have to keep their oar in. That's uh, Stephen Chu, the Secretary of Energy, and, and John Holdren, the science advisor of the president. Yeah, they're, they're the keys here. I think what they're hoping is they can just kind of hold everything at a marginal rate in the next year, and then the, the election's over, and then they can get lots of money in 2014. I, I think that's their game plan. I don't think they want to hurt the domestic program or either, but they're stuck in 2013 with a real budget problem. But by then, these programs, these experiments at MIT and the other labs, they'll be uh, mothballed. They'll be gone, and that, and either will have been delayed some more. And, uh, you know, I have no reason to think it won't eventually be successful, but the question is, what are we all going to be doing, you know, in the meantime, if all our facilities uh, get cut back or shut down uh, because the current generation of scientists will all be retired by the time ITER really is up and running at the rate we're going. So we won't have U.S. physicists being able to run ITER? You know, if it takes the next generation and we don't train them, that's a possibility. In terms of ITER's promise, it doesn't hope to produce energy on a commercial basis. It just wants to prove the concept. It's an engineering test reactor. So, yes, it will not produce electricity, but it will produce 500 megawatts of thermal energy for long periods of time, and so you'll be able to test reliability and maintenance and operating procedures and all of this that will be required before you could build a commercial plant. So it's a necessary step on the way to a commercial plant. Technical success is not guaranteed by any stretch of the imagination here, right? No, that's right. It's a very demanding engineering venture. It's a huge project, nothing on this scale of this advanced technology has ever been built before and still an experimental facility. You think it's going to work? Yeah, I'm hopeful that it will work. I don't expect to be alive to see it, unfortunately, at the rate that's going. I'm reminded of that old saying, uh, you know, fusion is the energy source of the future and always will be. Well, so far that still seems to be the adage. (laughs) But there's nothing been found in the last 50 years that would prevent it from eventually being successful. We get more sophisticated every year in terms of the accomplishments and the technologies and the physics that we've learned. The world scientific community uh, is very confident that this will eventually work out. It's just the schedule remains unsure. And part of the problem is that fusion is going to be expensive even when, when it is successful, and therefore it's going to have to compete against other energy sources. So exactly when and how it's going to be able to crack the market is also quite a bit uncertain. Well, Dr. Dean, thank you so very much. Okay, thank you. Physicist Stephen Dean is president of the nonprofit organization Fusion Power Associates.
Just ahead, natural gas from hydraulic fracturing is cheap and plentiful, but some say it's enough to make you sick. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A new study adds to the growing evidence and controversy about the possible health effects from the natural gas drilling method known as hydraulic fracturing. Researchers from the Colorado School of Public Health monitored fracking wells in the state for three years and found many were emitting potentially toxic hydrocarbons into the air, including benzene, toluene, and xylene. The researchers say the emissions may contribute to, quote, acute and chronic health problems for those living near the sites. The findings in Colorado would seem to support residents in Pennsylvania who live near fracking wells and claim the drilling process has made them sick. But as Reed Frazier of the public radio program The Allegheny Front reports, the evidence isn't conclusive. So how'd you do? Good. Not too bad? No. Amy Perret is a plastic surgeon. She does lifts and tucks and breast implants. Today, she's taking sutures out of a patient who had a mole removed. I'll just, I may put a little bit of peroxone in there to dry it off a little bit, okay. and I'll take the Cosmetic procedures like this patient's are Perret's specialty. So it's remarkable that she finds herself in the middle of a public health debate. It started about two years ago. We started to have um, more patients that would have open areas or recalcitrant lesions that bled, ulcerated, didn't quite heal, and usually they're on your face. Perret's first concern was skin cancer, so she took biopsies of the patients. And when we would send them off to the lab, they wouldn't come back as a cancer, but they wouldn't come back normal. On top of the skin problems, the patients had headaches and were acting lethargic. And then we thought, well, are these patients exposed to anything? And so then we would ask the patients if they were exposed to anything at work or at home. It turned out many of these patients had one thing in common— they all live near Marcellus Shale gas wells. Perret's practice is in Washington County, south of Pittsburgh, where over 500 wells have been drilled so far. Perret asked her patients to take a urine test. Unfortunately, we did find quite a few people that did have um, urine that had methane in it, toluene, hippocuric acid. All of which could have come from natural gas drilling. What to do about these patients and discerning whether gas drilling is indeed the culprit is a question doctors and public health scientists are grappling with. Ralph Schmelz is with the Pennsylvania Medical Society. It represents 18,000 doctors in the state. The group thinks fracking for Marcellus Shale could have public health impacts. But there's a lot that we don't know and a lot we need to learn about exactly what they are. What he means is there's not much science yet that answers the question of whether fracking is safe. The industry says it is and can point to reports by state governments in Texas and Pennsylvania that find no evidence that fracking pollutes groundwater. On the other hand, a growing number of case studies have documented people near gas wells getting sick. But these studies are hardly definitive, says Jean Finkel. She's an epidemiologist at Weill Cornell Medical College in New York City. I am certainly not saying that these people don't have something wrong with them. I'm sure they do. The problem, she says, is that good old statistical axiom, correlation does not imply causation. That means that a headache could come from toxic fumes, but it could just as easily come from stress or some other factor. What's needed are long-term studies that look at a variety of questions, Finkel says. We have to look at biological plausibility. Is the disease that we're seeing biologically plausible? 
based on what we know about the potential compounds that are in the uh, drilling process? And how strong is the association between exposure to risk and development of disease? Many are calling for the creation of a health registry for Marcella Shale that would list people who say they've gotten sick from fracking. It would be used as a basis for future health risk studies. Last year, state lawmakers earmarked $2 million from the proposed Marcella Shale impact fee to fund a registry. However, that money was stripped out of the bill before a final vote. Even without impact fee funding, several shale-related health projects have sprouted in recent months. Among these efforts is the Southwestern Pennsylvania Environmental Health Project. This is our resource center that's going to be looking at gas drilling impacts. Rena Ripple runs the center. It's funded by philanthropies, including the Heinz Endowments, which also funds the Allegheny Front. The center opened in February in a suburban medical office building just south of Pittsburgh. The office isn't much to look at, just a few plants and a TV in the waiting room. But the center is the first of its kind, a medical outreach program specifically designed to treat people near gas wells. We're going to the people who we believe have probably been impacted. So, you know, are these people who are in proximity to a gas drilling site or gas drilling activities? And are they experiencing significant health concerns? And we want to provide them with a response. Much of the response will be to refer patients to the appropriate physician. The center will compile patient information for scientists to study, but that's not the project's primary function. We're serving this population. We are not studying. We're not researching. That's not what we're doing. What it is doing is helping people like June Chapel. Chapel and a group of her neighbors in Hopewell Township in Washington County lease their land for drilling. The company they leased to, Range Resources, built an impoundment behind Chapel's house to store water produced from fracking. The water in ponds like this often contain chemicals used to break up the shale, as well as heavy metals and salts that it picks up underground. Chapel says when she came home, she could smell the pond even before she got to her house. The only way I can explain it is it smelled like if you were sitting in your car with a gasoline can. At the time, Chapel's husband, Dave, was suffering from cancer. He began to develop nosebleeds. She thought they were from his chemotherapy. Then she started getting nosebleeds, too. Then a ringing in her ears. It almost sounds like um, when you go to, like, a real loud concert, and you're there, and then the next day your ears are just like, that, that's what it sounds like, but this just never stops. Chapel complained to Range Resources. The company removed the frack pond. Matt Pizzarella, a Range spokesman, says the company probably shouldn't have put the impoundment so close to Chapel's house. He also said that any odors were probably due to stagnant water, not pollution. And he disputed the claim that the wells could have made Chapel sick. Chapel's husband, Dave, lost his fight with cancer two years ago. But she's now worried for her own health. And I don't know what my health is going to be. You know, I was exposed to these chemicals for over a year. We had our windows open. I had like a blue film on my mirrors. You know, we were breathing this stuff in. In spite of reports from people like Chapel, some doctors think fracking is safe. Cian Porbin has a small practice in Avella, Pennsylvania, in Washington County. The town is surrounded by wells. 
I've been looking for it for the past three years, and I haven't seen a thing. I think the big story here so far is, with all the hype, is that there is no story. Poor Ben himself has leased gas rights to his property. He sees the gas rush as a boon to this old coal town, and he wonders if health complaints aren't driven by a profit motive. Corbin's also worried scientists looking for harmful impacts from fracking could find evidence of a problem where none actually exists. Still, he says, he'll keep his eyes open. He signed on to work with the newly opened Environmental Health Center. The potential here is that everyone is supposed to win. The farmers getting the royalties, the subway shops that have that are full at lunch, the little gas stations, the everyone's winning here, and no one wants to see anyone get sick. Uh, you got to watch it, though. Remember, we are. Among those who figure to be winning and watching are Kathy and Guy Avolio. On a recent day, they took me to see the well Chesapeake drilled on their property three years ago. It sits on a large pad behind their home on what had been a rolling hillside. The couple also live in a villa on a 600-acre farm with a koi pond and a chicken coop. They have three kids. It's not a stretch to say the well has become almost another family member, complete with its own nickname. The kids call it college. They do. Our kids will say, hey, that's college out there. Guy Avolio is an urgent care physician. He's heard and read reports of water contamination from fracking, but he's convinced that drilling is the right thing to do. He's very concerned about America's energy independence. The Avolios don't drink their well water, but they do have it tested every few months just in case. The water, says Kathy Avolio, is safe. I would never put my kids, no matter what price tag you put on it, would I ever put my kids in harm's way. But I also feel like my husband does. I mean, we have to try to get this. I mean, this is an incredible technology. Guy Avolio grew up in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, where his dad was a steel worker. He remembers when the mills were booming. He always says, you know, the cars were dirty, the streets were dirty, but at least everybody had a job. The scene they see now in front of their house is one of economic prosperity, and their family is healthy. For the Avolios, the benefits of shale outweigh the risks, whatever they may be. For Living on Earth, I'm Reed Frazier. Our story on the possible health effects of fracking comes to us by way of the Pennsylvania public radio program, The Allegheny Front. a familiar sound. Bubble wrap is fun to pop, and each year we use enough of it to protect stuff being shipped to stretch to the moon and back. That's a lot of crackle and pop. And there's a lot of snap from styrofoam, too. We go through 19 billion pounds of styrofoam a year, and that's just from the peanut-shaped packing stuff. Bubble wrap and styrofoam are lightweight and cheap, but both are made from petroleum. And once used, they often wind up in landfills forever. That's where the company Ecovative Design comes in. The firm, based in Green Island, New York, has cooked up a unique product that gets to the root of the problem. Gavin McIntyre is the company's co-founder and chief scientist. We've actually looked to nature to grow the next generation of materials using a living fungus, what's called fungal mycelium, which you can think of as mushroom roots, to bind waste particles together 
And what you're left with is a material that feels and performs just like foam, but is 100% compostable in your backyard. So what kind of mushrooms are you using? We use some common medicinal mushrooms that you'd find in Asia, for example, but we only use the mushroom roots. We never actually use the mushroom itself. There are no spores everywhere in our process. So how'd you come up with the idea? The observation came from just examining mycelium growing on wood chips. And these wood chips were bound together quite nicely. And the concept was, okay, you know, these are really growing into these materials, digesting them, but they're also serving as an adhesive. Well, you sent us a couple of samples here and... I've got one right here. Yeah, it feels like foam. It's light. It's um, kind of brownish white. It's got all these kind of hairs growing on it, and, and it smells woodsy. Yeah, that's a, a really accurate description of the material, because what you'll see in there is those little fibers or particles are actual agricultural waste. What we do is we source all of our raw materials from within 500 miles of our manufacturing facilities, and these are waste streams that can't be fed to animals. They can't be burned for energy use, and they just lay fallow in the field. What's that stuff that you get from the field? So today we use things such as seed hulls or seed husks. So for example, if you were to go to a Chinese food restaurant and order some rice, that rice, when it's grown, is encapsulated in two little shells. And those shells are made predominantly of silica, so they can't be burned easily, and they don't really have nutritional value. What we can do is feed them to our fungus. So the fungus digests some of the particles while binding others together, and what you're left with is a cohesive piece of material. Mushrooms and rice. Add a little soy sauce, and you've got a meal. You could. You could eat it. We don't typically recommend it, though. And it works just like um, polystyrene. That's exactly right. Today, we provide the material as a protective packaging solution. So for heavy objects such as furniture, like tabletops or bookshelves, as well as electronics and home appliances, any of those custom-made parts that you see fit around a computer monitor, for example. So now when you get your monitor in the mail, you can just pull off the end caps that were previously made of foam. Now they're made out of mushrooms and agricultural waste. You can throw them right in your backyard and they're going to be 100% home compostable in just 30 days. So if I got um, a TV set and your packaging was around it, I would just throw it in the compost pile? That's right. The best way to dispose of our material is to break it up into some smaller pieces, and you throw it right in your backyard. It serves as a, a nice active soil amendment, actually, because it helps aerate the soil and provide some nutrition to the soil. But the material is also anaerobically compostable, so if it ends up in your municipal landfill, it is of no burden to the environment. It'll just passively break down, but it takes a little bit more time. Will it sprout mushrooms? Oh, that's a very good question, and the answer is no. So after our growth process, we inactivate it and or basically kill it off. And to do that, we dry it out just using some standard baking processes. Because if you were to come into our manufacturing facility today, what you would see is racks upon racks of these growing materials. It's not a traditional manufacturing facility, but we're really closer to a vertical farm. What does your factory smell like? If you were to come into our factory today, what you would smell uh, is fairly similar to a, a mushroom farm. Some of our fungi species that we work with have a very sweet smell, and others really have a, a very woody smell, like you described earlier. So our material sort of smells like the cross between a uh, bakery or a bread factory and a wood mill. So I've got another sample you sent, and this one is um, hard, though. It's got one side hard. What would you use this for? 
So we've been developing a construction material over the last few years. And what's interesting about this material is not only is it comparable in insulation characteristics to foam, but it's inherently fire retardant to the point where if you were to hit our material with a blowtorch, they won't burn. So you could use this to insulate your house. That's correct. And we've actually insulated a number of houses as well as some commercial applications in the American Northeast. Could you make blocks of this stuff and actually do construction with it? Yeah, so construction materials are one of the avenues that we're pursuing today. So it's installed in places in New York as well as in Vermont. And some of the other interesting things that we're working with is things such as replacements for engineered wood, like the cores that are found in your tabletops. We're also developing materials for the automotive market. So the same performance characteristics that we're getting out of a protective packaging where it's absorbing and dissipating energy, we're applying those same materials to door panels and bumpers. So the bottom line, what's the bottom line in terms of cost? How does this stack up against... um you know, styrofoam. We sell these materials at either cost parity or below the foam and synthetics that they were using previously. It's cheaper? It's either parity or cheaper today for a number of reasons. First, we have an open loop system. So we're just using agricultural waste from anywhere. So if there were ever to be a price constraint on a rice hull, we can easily transition to oat hulls. The other side of this is that we're not dependent upon finite resources. We're not tied into the, the petrol market. And finally, all of our manufacturing processes are housed by the organism. It's literally self-assembling in the dark at room temperature. So we don't have to have the same complex machinery that's required for expanded foams. Do you have to keep your factory in the dark? We don't have to keep in the dark. We keep the lights on, but those are only for the humans. (laughs) Gosh, this is terrific. So um, what's the downside? There's got to be a downside to this. So today, our materials are slightly more dense, so they're a little heavier than your traditional foams, but we have made some significant strides to date in terms of reducing our density. A few years ago, we were at a 12 pound per cubic foot density, where your traditional foams are between one and three pounds per cubic feet, and today we've got our materials down to two and a half pounds. Well, Gavin, thanks so much. Really uh, good talking to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Gavin McIntyre is founder and chief scientist with Ecovative Design in Green Island, upstate New York. Coming up, thinking a lot about the parking lot and how to put the space to good use. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. America's urban forests are in trouble. That's what David Nowak of the U.S. Forest Service told us in a recent interview. He should know he counted them using satellite images and found trees in virtually all the cities he studied are falling victim to insects, disease, and development. Nowak says that's a problem because the trees perform valuable eco-services. They clean the air. They help clean the water by intercepting water and, and reducing runoff. They take in carbon dioxide. If they shade buildings and reduce air temperatures in cities, it has huge impacts on energy use. But listener Enrico Finn didn't despair when he heard our interview on WUFM in Lake Orion, Michigan. Instead, Enrico came up with a cool fix for a hot planet. His idea? For every parking spot in a city or suburb, you plant a tree. Not only we just beautify those horrific parking lots, sequester CO2, create habitats for birds, etc., it will save the country untold gallons of gasoline by allowing cars to be parked in the shade in the summer. 
Thanks, Enrico. And for your cool fix for a hot planet, we're sending you a cool blue Living on Earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save fuel, money, and the planet by cutting climate-changing emissions. So get pumped and send your ideas our way. Email coolfix at LOE.org. That's coolfix, just one word, at LOE.org. Or post your ideas on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. You might not know this specific place, but you're definitely familiar with the scene. I'm at the parking lot in the Porter Square shopping area in North Cambridge, Massachusetts. Just down Mass Ave is Harvard University, and beyond that, MIT, which is where Aran Ben-Joseph is a professor of landscape architecture and planning, and he joins me in the Porter Square lot to talk about his new book, Rethinking a Lot, The Design and Culture of Parking. Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. Beautiful day. Oh, is it ever? You know, I hadn't thought of parking lots a lot until I read your book. And then I realized how important they are and the role they play in American life. This was the reason I wrote the book, uh, is uh, hopefully for people to pay more attention to these kind of spaces. You say in the book there are 500 million parking spaces in the United States. These are just lot spaces, not parking garage spaces. And that, what, over 120 million people drive to work every day and they wind up parking in parking lots. That's correct. We actually think that cars are immobile about 95% of the time. And in terms of uh, parking uh, estimate, I think that uh, it's very hard. Some people even say that there are way more than 500 million parking spaces. On average, we think that there are three spaces per one car in the United States. Some places uh, we estimate, and again, it's very uh, hard to give a precise measurement, but by looking at aerial photographs, about 30% sometimes of the land could be uh, devoted to parking lots. And then there are some places that could be even higher than that, particularly where there are a lot of malls, places like Florida or even some places in the Midwest. So this parking lot here, you cite in your book as being a good example of a good parking lot, and it's got uh, kind of places we can sit. Here's the stores, and it's got a bunch of parking spaces there, some trees, some landscaping there. It's not uh, inhospitable. Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's definitely one of the better ones. First of all, uh, as you can see, it's almost like an urban square. It is very nicely surrounded by buildings that actually create a space, an open space. I especially like the front part, the part that is next to Mass Ave, because it is a little bit more narrow. There are wider sidewalks where we actually sit right now here in front of the cafe. There is a table. The cars are actually kind of provide a buffer between us and the traffic. And there's a lot of uh, actual both movements of people, pedestrians, cars, bikers. And in a way, I like it because it's a big mix. See, like right now, the biker is just riding in the middle of the parking lot Uh with a car coming through. I think that the drivers feel somewhat inferior in the space here and feel a little bit that they need to behave differently. It's not their space. Well, that's interesting because parking lots are one of the few places where pedestrians and cars have to co-mingle in a way they don't do ordinarily on the streets. That's correct. The idea that we share the space and there's actually not a clear designation between a driver and a pedestrian, I think, again, puts people in a different uh, state of mind in terms of how they behave. It seems more unruly, but in a sense, uh, the behavior is very different as compared to a street. And... In my opinion, it is uh, much more of an exciting space. What about a parking lot at shopping malls or Walmart or something like that, you know, Best Buy, where they're just enormous? How would you make those more human? 
First of all, you could reduce part of the parking that is not used every day or on a regular basis. Often these large parking areas that are associated with large department stores are designed to uh, fit parking for the peak shopping day over the year, sometimes, you know, the after Thanksgiving day where everybody goes shopping. So if it is, for example, third of the parking spaces, those areas could be designed differently. It could be done with grass, could be done with gravel. So first of all, the material could be much more appropriate than, than asphalt. Another approach would be to really treat it almost like an orchard where you could plant it heavily with a lot of trees, again, increase the uh, green area, increase the vegetation. Another simple technique, which will be a, quite a appropriate is to deal with areas where pedestrians can actually walk safely from the car to the entrance to the buildings. So dealing with a parking lot is a, is a part of the spatial sequence. And as people enter the shopping mall, they don't feel like they have entered a desolated place until they actually enter the store. There are other elements to the parking lots themselves that are very intriguing, how people use parking lots, how people behave in parking lots. You know, everybody, when they, you talk about parking lots, you talk about music, everybody thinks of the Joni Mitchell song, you know, they took down Paradise, put up a parking lot. They paid Paradise, put up a parking lot. But is there a favorite song that you have about parking lots? Uh, I, I don't know if I have... I have one song which is more of a parody on uh, the Whole Foods parking lot. It's getting real in the Whole Foods parking lot. You know the deal with the little shopping carts they got. Check out what I say. It happens every day. It's how I, I don't know how Whole Foods will, <laughs> will like that. I'm riding slow in my Prius. All leather, tinted windows. You can't see us. Everybody's trying to park. You, you can, can feel, feel the, the tension. tension. I'm in electric mode. Can't even hear the engine. There's also uh, other songs that are related more, I think, to the culture of rap and people partying in a parking lot. There are few songs that relate to that. And then, of course, there is this whole element of the teenagers, their behavior in parking lot. The parking lot are often these kind of leftover spaces that they can do things that are maybe are not as supervised, and that's also important in terms of our urban environment. You know, this would be like a great place to have um, a concert, right? Especially if you said at nighttime, nobody's here. An interesting, the, the parking lot pickers are bluegrass players that like to hang in parking lots and they come to parking and they actually bring their instruments and they play and that's an old tradition apparently. Where is this? Most of the south and many other places that play bluegrass music. So Professor, what's the most unusual use of a parking lot that you've found besides parking cars? There's a couple of interesting examples. One that I can think of is a burial ground in the middle of a parking lot. Where's uh, that? uh, Mary Alice Graveyard in New Brunswick in New Jersey. Apparently, they built a parking lot in a shopping mall around her grave. It was so important for the shopping mall to have a parking lot, yet they couldn't move her grave. So in the center of this parking lot, she lays to rest. The ultimately parked. Yeah, ultimately parked. Uh, Maybe my next book would be uh, Rethinking the Plot. (laughs) Well, Professor, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Professor Aran Ben-Joseph's book is Rethinking a Lot, the Design and Culture of Parking.
coming up, an ode to sandhill cranes in New Mexico. But first, this note on emerging science from Mary Bates. Lead pollution is a serious problem around the world. Now scientists believe having a fungus among us may cut down on lead contamination. Soil gets contaminated with lead from many sources, including industrial waste and lead from firearms. One way to neutralize lead in contaminated soils is to add phosphorus, an element that interacts with lead, to form a stable and non-toxic mineral called pyromorphite. But this makes the soil more acidic, which can cause leaching of toxic heavy metals. And sometimes the process isn't very efficient. Researchers from the University of Dundee in Scotland may have a better solution. They found some types of fungus can transform lead into its most stable mineral form. What's more, they say this interaction between fungi and lead may be occurring naturally anywhere the two are found together. Researchers tested how lead shot broke down with and without help from fungi. When fungi were added, they saw the formation of pyromorphite within one month, and the amount of lead converted to pyromorphite kept increasing over time. Without fungi, the lead shot corroded into less stable and more toxic forms. This is the first report of fungi transforming metallic lead into pyromorphite. It's also the first demonstration that the change from lead to pyromorphite can result from a biological process rather than a purely chemical and physical one. The discovery that some fungi can transform toxic lead into a non-toxic mineral points to a new method of bioremediation. Introducing fungi to lead-polluted sites could be a safe and efficient way to get the lead out. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Mary Bates. As winter turns to spring, sandhill cranes in New Mexico prepare for their annual migration. From the Bosque del Upachi Wildlife Preserve to the western shore of Hudson Bay in Canada. Writer Mark Seth Lender traveled to the Bosque to observe this timely and timeless scene. Patient, elegant, sandhill cranes linger upon the flooded plain. Patient and austere. Here, by night, for the shallow safety this boundary of water provides, they stop to rest a while. For the sake of the food they found nearby, they linger and pay homage, a temporary domicile, a temporary feast. Turning toward the east, they form a long and upright line and prepare their salutation to the sun. They are in shadow, below the worn-down mountain that looms, and like the landscape, though weathered and tread upon by boundless heat, by bottomless cold, cranes persevere. Waiting, then walking one by one, they arrange by reference to the low, steady wind. Barely ruffling, they slowly bend, like stalks of wheat, heavy with seed. Watching, Stillness heavy in the air, they breathe. Then comes the golden scimitar of sun and catapult themselves into the glare, and they are gone. Two remain, only two. They lean as if their muscles are spring steel, the ice and bracelets crackling at their feet. Stepping high, they break clean away, 
Loping slow, they gain ground and speed, wing beats so deep they kiss the crystal clear beneath, until at last they rise. The long turn down the lake, a shadow play in tandem, not a meter below their elegant forms, these two, among all others, truly mated pair. Mark Seth Lender is author of Salt Marsh Diary, a year on the Connecticut coast. To see a slideshow of sandhill cranes in flight, migrate to our website, LOE.org. On the next Living on Earth, a wall of trees across Africa could help stop the sands of the Sahara from spreading and quench a region's thirst. Planting trees is good for us. Those trees can bring water, and water is our future. Water can solve our problems. We are praying for this project to continue. Seedlings of Hope, the Great Green Wall, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with a riveting chorus. The Apalachicola National Forest is the largest forest in Florida, and it's there in a boggy spot that these pine woods tree frogs lift their froggy voices in song. Listen closely, and you'll also hear occasional notes from southern cricket frogs and green tree frogs. Lang Elliott and Ted Mack recorded this amphibian sing-along for their CD, Voices of the Swamp. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lerjdeen composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. Also, don't forget our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwin is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, Organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI. Public Radio International.